What a blessing it is to have people gifted in our church, and not only gifted, but willing to use their gifts. And uh, it's been a beautiful morning thus far, and I hope the Lord will continue to bless us as we spend time together, especially looking at the Word of God. The mystery of the Queen of Sheba. You see, human beings are fascinated with mysteries, at least majority of the human beings are fascinated with mysteries. Uh, we love to understand everything and we want to know everything that is happening and to find an explanation. But you know, not every single time it's possible to understand every single mystery. Uh, I haven't lived long enough, uh, but I've come to the conclusion that women are still a mystery. And I guess some uh, men agree with me. You know, sometimes when they say maybe, they mean yes, and no is yes, and so on. And uh, maybe I'll change my opinion later on, but women are a mystery, and we're going to understand probably another time why is that. Some of the most known mysteries in the world, you may agree or disagree with me on this uh, list, but that's fine, it doesn't really matter. Usually number one comes with the Bermuda Triangle. This is a triangle formed between Miami in Florida, the Bermuda Islands, and Puerto Rico. And it is believed that under mysterious circumstances, a number of ships and airplanes have disappeared as they were traveling or they were flying above this area and no one has an explanation of why the Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle, is such a mysterious uh, uh, spot in the world. Uh, this particular stone, rock, uh, or carving in wood, I should say, is known as Rongorongo. It is a system of glyphs that was discovered in the 19th century on the eastern, uh, Easter Island, I should say. No one has been able to decipher the writing. It is believed to be writing or proto-writing on, on that uh, uh, piece. And it is believed to contain the mystery to all the big statues or the big heads that are on the Easter Island. However, uh, people are still finding it very mysterious. And yet we don't know what was carved into that piece of wood. And of course, another mystery that is accepted by the world, it is the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. It, we, According to the book of Exodus, it was a wooden chest covered with gold. It contains the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. We believe it was hidden uh, by the priests before the Babylonians came to conquer Jerusalem. And yet today, we do not know where this Ark of the Covenant is hidden. Hopefully, one day, God wills, will be discovered. And probably there's someone here in the church that will go on an expedition and discover this amazing piece. Anyhow, this morning, Michael Browning, Jr., and I would like to share with you another mystery, and that is the mystery of the Queen of Sheba. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to follow us as we go through 1 Kings uh, chapter 10. Here we find more about King Solomon. As a result of God's blessing in his life, King Solomon became quite famous. And a number of uh, nations were intrigued by not only his, his knowledge, his wisdom, but the riches he accumulated in his empire. And people started to visit him. But what I find fascinating here is in 1 Kings chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Kings 10. So keep your Bibles open in this uh, at this uh, chapter, 
What I find fascinating is we have here a report of a queen that went to see King Solomon. The question is, why do we have this report and not other reports in such detail about various people that went to hear more about Solomon's wisdom and probably to see the riches that he accumulated? 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord... She came to test them with hard questions. So she was definitely prepared for this encounter. Uh, she wasn't there just to, to look around. She wanted to really see for herself if what she heard was in fact true. And verse 2, it says, She came to Jerusalem with great company, with camels and bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So basically, uh, she was quite content. She came prepared and she said, I need to, to come to the bottom of this. What is so special about this guy, about his fame? The whole world heard about him. My question is, why do we have this report about Queen of Sheba? Why so much detail? Why did the Bible writer went to, to this extent to write all of these things? My guess, my belief is that God wanted us to read it. And not only to read it or hear it, but he wanted us to learn something from this particular experience, from this encounter between Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. And hopefully today, together, we are going to understand what was the purpose. We may never know the name of this queen, and I'm going to make this as the foundation for our discussion this morning. We may never know the real name of the queen of Sheba. However, Michael and I would like to create a case for her identity. We would like to present to you a possibility, which sounds very plausible. That's why I'm quite excited to, to share it with you together with Michael. Uh, it just brings history back to life. And, um, but more importantly than her identity, more importantly than her name, would be what happened during her visit in Jerusalem. What happened after her conversation with King Solomon. I believe that will be more important. In building our case for her identity, I would like you to read with me in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 10, to give us an understanding of the things that this queen brought with her as she was visiting King Solomon. Verse 10, it says, Then she gave the king... 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. And then there's this uh, statement made after this description saying, There never again came such abundance of spices as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So definitely, here we have someone that could afford a lot of things. And we use this language in the Bible and for me personally, I don't really get it what is like 120 talents of gold. How many of you know what is that in, in, in kilograms? Any of you familiar? Does your brain click and says, oh, that's how much? Jaden knows? 16 kilos. Hopefully I'm not wrong in my research because my figure is a bit different. Uh, let's see what, I, what I've discovered. So one talent equals 27 kilo, uh, kilograms. One talent. Now... 120 talents is 3,282 kilograms. Amongst precious stones, spices, and other things, here we have a queen that was so rich that she could afford to give away as a gift 3,000 kilograms of gold. 
This is important because we're looking at someone, you know, what was the country she was coming from to be so rich so she can afford such a gift? Because you not only give away this gift, but you must have a lot back home to afford to make such a gift. One kilogram of gold nowadays is about 54,000 Australian dollars. So what the gift, her gift, Queen Sheba's gift in gold in today's societies would be worth more than $178 million. Would you give such a gift just for visiting someone? Or probably Solomon wasn't just a stranger to Queen of Sheba. Probably. Just putting it out there. Some claim that this Queen of Sheba came from Arabia. Others believe she came from Ethiopia. Historians are divided. They, they, they can't really agree and say she was definitely from here because everyone comes up with their own theory. Well, I don't have so much of a theory. I think uh, I've got a pretty reliable source because the one that tells me where Queen of Sheba came from is none other than Jesus Christ. It's fascinating that Jesus throughout his ministry on earth made reference to a number of people in the Old Testament. And out of all the people that he could have chosen in his speeches and sermons, Jesus Christ chooses to talk about Queen of Sheba. However, he makes reference to her with a different title. In Matthew 12:24, this is what Jesus says, the Queen of the... South. He doesn't use the title Queen of Sheba. However, he says Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and do what? Condemn it. Therefore, we'll talk about this later on, but something took place during her visit with Solomon in Jerusalem. But Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon uh, is here. Queen of the South. That is a biblical term telling us that she was from Egypt. In the book of Daniel, kingdom of the South is Egypt. Kingdom of the North is Babylon. So Jesus, this reliable source, tells us that Queen of Sheba, she came from Egypt. So now we know where she came from, but what was her name? Can we know? Can history tell us? Does archaeology have anything to say? Well, there's another fellow. Some of you might know him. He's a Jewish historian. I should say he was a Jewish historian. His name was Josephus Flavius. In his book, Antiquities of the Jews, book number 8, chapter 6, talking about this encounter in 1 Kings chapter 10, he makes this reference. There was a woman, queen of Egypt and Ethiopia, which lines up perfectly with what Jesus was referring as queen of the south. When this queen heard of the virtue and prudence of Solomon, she had a great mind to see him. She really wanted to go and see Solomon. And the reports that went every day abroad induced her to come to him. She being desirous to be satisfied by her own experience, not by a bare hearing. So we sort of know where she came from. We're still trying to work out her name. As I said... We're going to present a case for her identity, and I'm going to invite Michael Browning to come up here now. Uh, But above all, we're presenting a theory which can be great, but more importantly than a name, I'd like you to keep in mind is what happened 
during her time that she spent in Jerusalem with King Solomon. And Michael is going to share more light with us about this possible identity of Queen uh, of Sheba. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Pastor Abel. Um, When Abel was wanting to talk about this topic, he was looking for someone who uh, had nerves of steel, somebody who had um, a very eloquent way of speaking, someone who had great knowledge on this topic, but he must have come up short because he asked me. So you'll just have to bear with me. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about a particular queen of Egypt. Um, As Abel said, nobody is really sure of who this particular person was. There's plenty of speculation. Um, I have my own convictions uh, about it, but I'm not going to impose those on you. I'm simply going to state some facts about a particular queen and then leave it up to your own uh, determination. So, just to give you a background of why Abel actually asked me to help him out with this particular topic, uh, several years ago, I'm I'm from an IT background, and several years ago, um, my wife and I, Carrie, uh, got invited by David Down to help him out with his archaeology magazine. So, for the next six years, from the end of 2006 through to 2012, we worked closely with David, I travelled with him. Um, and he was uh, a real mentor to me. And during that time, I also uh, decided to study at Macquarie University and I did a master's in Egyptology. Uh, and I found that absolutely fascinating. I've always loved archaeology, particularly Egypt. Um, and so here we are. So one of the things that David did introduce me to while we were travelling, well, it was really... I consider it a priceless gift that he gave me and that was uh, something that came quite slowly and I didn't realise this quite so well until he passed away earlier this year, um, that he gave me utmost confidence in the Bible and in the, the fact that it's the inspired word of God and that it's totally infallible because when you spend six years travelling around with somebody who has his knowledge of the, the Middle East and, and of the Bible and of all the other uh, documents that are are related to it, it's very hard not to get that infection. He also introduced me to the lady, believe it or not, uh, that is on the screen behind you. Uh, Behind me, sorry, in front of you. Um, Even though she is dressed in the regalia of a man, this is actually Queen Hatshepsut. Now, just before I go into the actual evidence of why I personally think that Hatshepsut fits the profile and what we know about the Queen of Sheba, I just wanted to give you a little bit of her background um, and also of the time in Egyptian history when she, um, when she lived. And then also, uh, Abel was saying that for someone to be able to give the amount of money and spices and all the valuable things, you had to actually have those resources at home. So firstly, Hatshepsut was born into the 18th dynasty of Egypt. So for those of you who don't know, a dynasty is obviously a family line. I mean, most people know that, but just to refresh it. So wherever 
there was a continuation of a family line that was a dynasty when the family had no heirs a new dynasty would take place so of all the Egyptian dynasties the, the 18th and 19th dynasties were by far the most affluent so this is well after the great pyramids of Egypt were built and all the money that it would have taken to build those this was quite a long time after that and this was a more affluent time than that it's also one of the times in Egyptian history that was most heavily documented. So we've got papyrus documents, we've got inscriptions on temple walls, we've got statues with inscriptions, there's tomb paintings. So we have a very, very clear understanding of what life was like, um, how their culture worked. So one thing that we learn from that is that Hatshepsut ruled for 22 years. So let's go back to, you know, Egyptians, uh, the, the pharaohs were very interested in their, their lineage and, and how they are having their right to the throne. So the first king of the 18th dynasty, his name was Amos. Now the 18th and 19th dynasty was a very military focus. That's when we have Ramses II and Tutmosis III and all those very warlike pharaohs. And that's because that dynasty started when they revolted against the Hyksos that had taken over Egypt and they kicked them out and then they became a very powerful military uh, culture. So Amos was the one who kicked out the Hyksos. Uh, his son was Amenhotep I. Then his son was Tutmosis I. Now Tutmosis I had two daughters, one of which was Hatshepsut and the other one was Neferubati. We don't really know much about her. She kind of disappears from the Egyptian records. And Hatshepsut uh, was then married to her half-brother, Tutmosis II. Now, that was a very common thing to maintain the, um, the family line. Uh, so there was a lot of marrying of sisters and half-brothers and all this sort of stuff, same as the Roman Empire. Um, there's a lady called Joyce Tildesley who has done a lot of research, particularly on the queens and everything of Egypt, because there wasn't too many queens, but uh, one of the, the research areas that she was quite interested in was Hatshepsut, because she is a fascinating lady. So Tildesley has determined that Hatshepsut would have been about 12 years old when she was married. Uh, the life expectancy back then was a lot shorter. Um, wealthy people who had access to good food and good medical care might have lived to 40 to 50, the average person 20 to 30. So being married young by our standards is a bit odd, but by those standards, you know, that was fairly common. Now, the only trouble that she had was that Tutmosis II died unexpectedly. Um, Hatshepsut would have been about 15 at that stage and she had no children, she had no heir to the throne. And so Tutmosis III had a secondary wife and... The secondary wife had a son who became Tutmosis III, who was uh, probably the most powerful of all the pharaohs, even though Ramses II gets a lot of uh, publicity. So um, Tutmosis III would have been five years old when Tutmosis II died, and so he became king at five. And uh, Hatshepsut, his stepmother, she actually became the regent, essentially being the older one to keep the throne for him. So at 15 years of age, Hatshepsut finds herself essentially ruling Egypt with her five-year-old uh, stepson as, as the king. About seven years later, she actually took on the title of king herself 
and they ruled together. Now, just to give you a bit of an idea of how wealthy these periods of Egyptian history were, I just wanted to show you a couple of quick slides. Now, sorry, uh, Tutankhamun, everyone will have seen um, documentaries and pictures of all the wonderful things that came out of his tomb. Keep in mind, Tutmosis, uh, sorry, Tutankhamun, he died suddenly. He had a really small tomb. It was a hurried burial. Um, and that's one of the reasons probably why it was found intact because it was kind of overlooked. And despite that, there was 5,500 individual artefacts, many of solid gold, that came out of that particular tomb. Now, when we worked at archaeological diggings, uh, we were lucky enough to get an invite, uh, a press invite, down to the Melbourne exhibition of Tutankhamun that came through. And also... Uh, we were allowed to take photos, which most people weren't. So it wasn't just Tutankhamun's uh, equipment and things from his tomb, although there was the, the key features were from him. It was actually from the whole entire period, so from the 18th and 19th dynasty. So there was a, a little sort of blanket furniture box um, that, that was there. You can see it's inlaid with gold, uh, turquoise, faience, all sorts of beautiful things. This is a sarcophagus. Now, this is life-size. This wasn't from Tutankhamun. This was from a, an earlier um, pharaoh, the, the hair being of a female. But you can see... Um, where's the pointer here? So you can see uh, this is coral from the Red Sea. The dark blue is lapis lazuli, then turquoise and lapis lazuli around the eyes, uh, ivory inserts, and, of course, the rest of it being solid gold. Um, and just a little bracelet, a small one, you know, gold, all the usual paraphernalia. You can see the name, it doesn't, it's not very clear, but that's actually Tutankhamun's uh, bracelet. Uh, I think this would be a brooch of some description, not being a jewellery wearer myself, I'm not sure what occasion you would wear that, but again, um, bejeweled with all the various different things in gold. And these are from Tut's tomb. I don't know if any of you know much about it and you saw that the three big cupboards that uh, were inlaid with gold that his sarcophagus was inside. So this here is solid... Well, it's not solid gold, but it's timber overlaid with gold. And this was a little gold statue with faience on the top. Um, and his tomb was full of 5,500 items like this. And this was the prize piece from the uh, exhibition. It was only about this big. Um, look, I can't remember. I think it might have been uh, for the, the two little fetuses that they, were, that they found in his tomb and they were buried inside this. But this is like a, a miniature re replica of his full-size sarcophagus. So again, it's gold... You've got inlaid with lapis lazuli. By the way, that came from Afghanistan, so it was a long way to, to be able to get those things. So it wasn't just valuable, it was also hard to get. Um, and obviously very detailed. Um, so this little sarcophagus, about yay big, uh, was in his tomb. But when you think about what he was actually buried in, he had three of these... He was inside it. One of them was 110 kilos of solid gold. So 
for a hasty burial of a young guy who died unexpectedly, to me that just gives you a little bit of an insight into these pharaohs that ruled for a long time. Just to give you an idea, his tomb had two chambers in it, that's it. Uh, Ramses II, he had a very, very big tomb for himself and running off that was a long corridor with 55 rooms, one for each of his sons. So if this was what was crammed into two little rooms for uh, Tutankhamun, I can only imagine what would have been in some of these other pharaohs' tombs. So it was a very, very affluent time in Egyptian history, so gold was not in short supply. The other thing that shows the wealth of this particular time is the buildings that they were able to construct. Now, this is my son and my daughter when they were little. They were a lot lot older than that now they are. But they're standing on the feet of one of the largest statues that was ever found in Egypt, which unfortunately collapsed during an earthquake a very long time ago but you can see the size of this statue and that's Kate again and they're the two feet of the statue Um, and this is from Ramses temple there we go and then this again is from Ramses this is the big temple at Abu Simbel now this has actually been moved so um, all of All of this is original, but the rest of it's man-made because when they built the high dam and it was all flooded, UNESCO paid the money to to have that moved. But that is a huge structure. And so they're just a couple of many different structures that were built at that time. So, definitely had the capability to fund the things that... uh, were, were taken down there. Now, the next thing is, how do we know that Hatshepsut made this trip or why do we think that it was her that did it? Okay, so on her mortuary temple, which I'll show you in a minute, um, it has a trip that she took to a place called Punt. Now, there's a lot of questions, as Pastor Abel's already referred to, about where this trip to Punt actually was. There's plenty of evidence... Um, that has been used to determine where it was. They think it might have been Saudi Arabia. The traditional view is, and as you can see, there's lots of question marks on this because we don't know, but Waset was the name of uh, what we call Luxor today. That was the capital of the New Kingdom, so where the Valley of the Kings are. So she would have been based here and they would have had to go overland uh, to get to where they were going. But obviously, Josephus, you you heard the quote from Pastor Abel before. Um, According to Joyce Tildesley, who I was talking about before, the exact location of the Punt is uh, a mystery, although in her uh, reliefs, which I'll show you shortly, um, there was flora and fauna that they used to determine that it must have been an African country. But Tildesley suggests that even though... Uh, the flora and fauna did originate in Africa. Punt shouldn't be identified solely on botany. The Egyptian sailors, they were masters of the Nile. Obviously, the Nile being running this way, running from south to north. Um, They were masters of sailing the Nile, but the expedition wasn't to the north, in other words, via the Nile, but started at the Red Sea. There's sea life depicted in the reliefs on this temple I'll show you shortly. 
um, and they are being identified as being in the Red Sea. And from that, the suggestion has been, because the fauna and sea life was from the Red Sea, she must have come down here to this area because of the African fauna and flora and then the Red Sea creatures. Um, my theory, and this was also a theory that David Down shared, is we know from the um, facts that she got to here somewhere. If she had have turned and headed north, she would have ended up in this area that they think may have been where she came from. If she had have headed south, she would have gone here, gone up there, and that's Israel and Elat up in there, the south of, of Israel. So all, all the decision is, did she turn right or left? The, the evidence points to her getting there. Now, Solomon himself, we know, was an avid gardener. Did I just press the wrong button then? That's all right, I can just read it. I had a um, uh, a verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verses uh, 4 to 6. And Solomon himself says... Uh, I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So he was an avid gardener. We know that he had tribute from all over the world. So it's not a stretch to think that he would have had a, an exotic collection. The other thing that is worth noting is that punt, which was the Egyptian word, it just simply means God's land. It's also used in other Egyptian records to refer to Phoenicia and Palestine and Israel, that particular region, which is... Uh, whoops, where's my map? Hang on. There we go. Which is up in this region here. And um, for this reason, there are some scholars who actually do suggest that she went to Israel. Now, this particular temple is her mortuary temple. It's called Deir el-Bahari. And the reliefs in Deir el-Bahari show similar items to those given by Solomon. So if we have a look at some of those reliefs quickly, because I'm conscious of the time. Firstly, we can see, I hope you can see that okay. Um, they're carrying olive branches. These are her soldiers. So this is how we know that it was a peaceful trip, not a, not a war uh, campaign, because all of her soldiers are carrying these olive branches as a sign of peace. We can see reliefs. Now, I've got a line drawing of this because the temple has faded a lot and it's very hard to see. But what this actually depicts is her boat and underneath it is the water with the fish in it. So if I skip forward to the line drawing, that gives you a bit of a, a better view. So this is how they depict the, the sea and the fish in there, and you can actually determine uh, the species, and that's how they've decided that it was the Red Sea. This is them loading all the various different cargo on the boat for this trip to Punt, and a bit of a close-up. You can see trees, monkeys, cows, um, and various, various goods that are ready to be taken on this trip. So, um, she definitely took a lot of stuff and a lot of the things that she took match up with the list of things that 
were received by Solomon um, as uh, gifts, essentially. So, what then... Okay, all, all we know is, yes, she went on this, this wonderful trip. The other thing that makes me think that Hatshepsut is a very good candidate is the way that she was treated when she died and when her rule finished. It was not like any other pharaoh. Obviously, we've talked about Tutankhamun and all the wonderful things that he was given when he died. His mummy is sitting in, the, um, in the, his tomb still in an air-conditioned case. All the other pharaohs, they're all sitting in the museum in air-conditioned luxury. But no one has been actually able to identify Hatshepsut's um, mummy. She doesn't have a, a tomb anywhere that we know about. Yes, her mortuary temple I showed you has survived, even though it's a very different style to all the other ones. But there's some specific differences of the later years of Hatshepsut's life. So firstly, there's a, a suggestion that Tutmosis III uh, was so frustrated that he, he'd been kept from the throne because she was the co-regent with him when he was only little, that he went on a rampage after she finally left the throne and destroyed everything. But the... Ev sorry? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, but the evidence doesn't really support that. Um, the evidence actually says that it could have been up to 20 years later that he went and... Um, Destroy, or destroyed some of her things and defaced them and took her name out. So uh, Dennis Forbes, who was another well-known archaeologist, um, and he was also editor of a, a magazine, he said that although Tutmosis was five, thought to be five years old when he came, uh, he came to the throne, he was probably happy to be uh, off in his own wing of the royal palace, playing at war with his toy soldiers or else out on the practice field, learning to shoot a bow, throw a javelin and best of all, to drive his own chariot. Also, when he first became the sole ruler, rather than rampaging against Hatshepsut, he completed decorating two of her unfinished um, constructions, which obviously he wouldn't have done if he was cranky. It's also a fact that when he came to the throne, he set out on a foreign military campaign, so that suggests he was already in charge of the army. If he had the army's support, he could have thrown her out any time he wanted. And also, it is suggested that he was actually quite content with the situation, that he loved his stepmother and respected their relationship. So why, in later years, did he change his mind? This is the sort of thing that happened. I don't know if you can see it on this screen, but oh, it's a bit hard to see. But there's pieces chiselled out, and that's what they did to remove um, evidence of, of people that they didn't like. This is also what Tutmosis did. This was a an image of Hatshepsut. You can see it's been chiselled out. Sorry, it's a poor photo. It's a very old one. But chiselled out the likeness and so that she wasn't there anymore. Akhenaten, he was considered a heretic of a pharaoh because he changed the religions. Um, after he died, this wall here has been pulled apart because the, the pharaoh that built that wall, he pulled down all Akhenaten's uh, buildings and used the blocks to fill his wall. So later on, archaeologists pulled the other wall apart to get at Akhenaten's things, but that's what they did. They completely destroyed it. But one of her monuments, or some of her monuments, were actually, this is the remains of a wall that was used to just hide it, and I don't know if you can see the different colour at the top. So it wasn't destroyed, it was just hidden. So that shows to me some sort of respect. So the question is, why is there no mummy? Why was her, 
were her artifacts treated so differently? Why were they just hidden and not destroyed? And an explanation of that would be if Tutmosis III was under some sort of... Um, well, he could have seen it necessary to undertake the destruction to maintain his position uh, if there was a political reason why he had to do that, where, you know, say, for example, that she'd turned her back on the Egyptian gods. So I'll hand you back over to Pastor Abel and he can finish off. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. So what, what's interesting is that as we look in history, we find about this queen, um, Hatshepsut, that uh, had a sister that disappears. What's fascinating is Solomon's first wife was actually one of Pharaoh's daughters. And if you look quickly in 1 Kings chapter uh, 10, where we were spending some time, there's a statement that Queen of Sheba makes uh, regarding the reason why she came to see Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6, she goes, she said to the king, I was, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. So basically said, I heard a report about you. The question was, where did she get this report from? There was no social media. She didn't see it on news. Someone must have sent her information about what was happening in the land of, uh, of Israel, especially with King Solomon. And we can suspect that it was, in fact, her sister that was sending this report, as in Queen uh, or Pharaoh Hatshepsut's sister that was sending this report. If you turn a page and look in 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, verse 16, it says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, who was Solomon's wife. So Solomon's first wife was Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, it wasn't an ideal marriage, but it happened. But what's interesting is here we have a pharaoh that went into the land of the Philistines, uh, into Gezer. History tells us there are only two pharaohs that advanced into that area, and Hatshepsut's father is one of them that went into that area. So all of a sudden, you've got all these elements that pile up and it says, like, it can fit for a, uh, for a case we can lead towards her um, identity. In Patriarchs, uh, sorry, in Prophets and Kings, talking about Solomon's first wife, Ellen White wrote this, from a human point of view, this marriage, though contrary to the teachings of God's law, seemed to prove a blessing. Why? For Solomon's heathen wife was converted... So Pharaoh's daughter, the first wife that Solomon had, was converted and united with him in the worship of the true God. And what's fascinating, if you look in, again in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, you see when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, and it tells us exactly what was that fame concerning the name of the Lord, more than riches and more than the gardens that Solomon had and more than anything else, Queen of Sheba was interested in the name of the Lord because she might have heard that from her own sister who was already converted and embraced that. And as a result, when she returned back, uh, maybe there was a price she had to pay as a result of her conversion. In First Kings chapter 10, sorry, I'm moving quickly because uh, I know you're rushing. First um, Kings chapter 10 verse 9, uh, she says at the end of her visit with Solomon, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. 
what happens here is she gives glory to God as a result of Solomon's blessing. She acknowledges that Solomon ended up the man that he was because of God's hand upon him. And after that, this queen disappears from our, from our history, from in the book of the Kings. But then Jesus, out of all the characters in the Bible, he chooses Queen of Sheba, saying that she will stand up in judgment and condemn those that made a decision not to believe in God. We can imply from that statement that she will be a test testimony against those that had the opportunity to believe and yet they rejected because herself she made a commitment to God. Uh, in other words, she'll stand up in judgment. We are considering that as being the millennial judgment when she will uh, condemn through her own testimony that others didn't follow her example. Uh, in uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, we have this written, when the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon... Sorry, what the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon in way of material things was a small recompense for what she received in the way of spiritual things. She gave gold, precious stones, fragrant spices, but received in return heavenly treasures beyond the value of men. Her chapstick disappeared. Her mommy was never found. Her images were defaced. Why was she hated? A possible explanation would be because of the new found faith in God. And this is where I want to end this morning. Sometimes when you take a stand for God, your own family might end up hating you. Sometimes when you take a stand for God, your own friends that you once counted as friends may push you aside. Sometimes when you, stand, when you take a stand for God... Your workplace is no longer the same because people no longer treat you the same. Queen of Sheba counted the cost and she was willing to pay it. Regardless of her name, Queen of Sheba found a treasure that was worth more than all the gold she had, that was worth more than all the precious stones she had, that was worth more than all the spices she brought to King Solomon. The question is that I would like to ask you is, have you found Jesus to be more valuable than the riches of this world? Have you found Jesus to be more valuable than all the riches that this world has to offer? So as we finish this morning, my appeal is in a way twofold. My appeal is in a way those that are in the, in the group of Queen of Sheba. That maybe haven't made a commitment to God yet. Maybe you haven't surrendered every aspect of your life. The question that you need to ask yourself today and maybe answer today and now is this. What is it that you're holding back from giving it to God? What is it that stops you from fully surrendering yourself to God? Have you surrendered every aspect of your life to God? Have you allowed Him to come in every room of your life and clean up and restore, rejuvenate According to the Bible, there is no point in gaining the whole world if you lose your soul. And if there's something that stops you from really surrendering yourself to God, ask yourself, is it really worth it? So why not say to God today, God, I'm all yours today. No more turning back.
And also there are those that are more like Solomon's, those that have committed their lives to Jesus. But have you asked him on a daily basis to use you so he can share the blessed hope with others around you? When you wake up in the morning, is it your prayer to God saying, God, use me today to lead someone to Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? If every single one of us, before we rush into any other activities, to pray to God, use me today to introduce someone to Jesus Christ. So that people can have a hope in a God that never lets you down. That God, a God that is with you when life gets tough. For people to discover a God that promised to come back and rescue us from this world. The faith that we have is meant to be shared. It's like a muscle that if you don't use it, you lose it. It is a faith that if you don't share it, you lose it. So today we've got two categories in our church. Some maybe that haven't really submitted fully to God, and God is the one that is appealing to you, and it's not me. To give it all to Jesus. Give it all. And some of us that have been converted and maybe have come to church for 40 and 50 years, God is still willing to use it to introduce someone to Jesus Christ. And may it be your prayer on a daily basis. Use me to bring hope into someone's life. Help me to introduce one person at a time to Jesus Christ. My friends, I hope that today will be a new beginning for all of us. And regardless of what was the name of Queen of Sheba, we know that she returned to her homeland converted. From her encounter with a man of God, and may the same thing happen as we encounter people that have no faith in God. And as we go from here, I hope that you'll utter in your heart, take the world. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Amen.